Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. As negotiations continue over the new NAFTA agreement, if there's going to be one between Canada and the United States, I spoke with Mark Warner. He's a Canada-U.S. trade lawyer. The Trans Mountain Pipeline extension is the subject of vague assurances from Ottawa this week. Meanwhile, there's another pipeline option waiting for development and to be approved by the federal government. It has been approved by First Nations. Calvin Helene is the chairman of the Eagle Spirit Pipeline. He's also a First Nations lawyer. I spoke with him. Artificial intelligence. Kai-Fu Lee is the former president of Google China, also a former executive with Microsoft and Apple. He's the author of AI Superpowers, and I spoke with him about the present reality of artificial intelligence and where we're headed. Have a listen. Now let's talk about what in fact is going on, what is likely to happen, whether we've seen this kind of reality before. I don't recall anything quite like this. And what's likely to come out of it? And joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is Mark Warner. He's a trade lawyer in both Canada and the United States. Mr. Warner, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, thanks for having me. Have you seen, experienced anything like what's going on now between Canada and the United States? Well, I, I think what makes this difference is, is the public aspect of it. I mean, it used to be in, you know, trade negotiations were conducted in, you know, wood-paneled back rooms, uh, with cigar smoke and pipes and that sort of thing. And, you know, there was a bit of theatrics even in those days. But I think, you know, there was a public demand that started about 20 years ago, actually back when I was at the OECD when they were working on something called the Multilateral Agreement on Investment, and then led to, uh, 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 you know, the negotiations in Seattle in the, the WTO. And since that time, there's been real demand for public, uh, the public transparency on negotiations. And so we're in this halfway world now where, where you have kind of transparency through the tweets of Donald Trump and the leaks of the Canadian government and the occasional comments from Trudeau, um, but not a lot of, you know, on-the-record substantive briefings. So it's, it's kind of, I kind of think in some respects, is the worst of both worlds. Yeah. That's it, where we are. How much of a personality standoff is going on? Well, I think that's part of it. I mean, that's not, that's not always, that's not all of it. I mean, it, it, I think that, um, you know, clearly, you know, I think clearly that uh, Canada has got under Trump's skin, and I think there are some reasons for it. Um, obviously, we're dealing with politicians who, who have their own agendas, um, three sets of politicians, and probably more, depending on how you want to go at it. But, you know, the Mexicans have just elected a new president, and uh, he takes office at the end of uh, November. And so there's that whole business of finishing up the term of one guy, starting the term of a new guy. Trump basically has midterm elections that could very well, you know, determine his fate. So he's thinking about that. And let's face it, Trudeau is now probably almost a year away from his own re-election, and he hasn't compromised much. And, you know, and now he's being asked to rush a little bit because of the timetable of, of Trump and the new Mexican president. And, and I guess how all that fits together is really hard to see. How did you react to uh, the president of the United States saying that 
the ruination of Canada would follow a 25% auto tariff. Well, you know, I, I can't say that I'm surprised. I mean, I, I think the threat is there. I think that we need to, um, you know, we, need, we don't need to panic, but we do need to take it seriously. I mean, I, the point that I've been trying to make for you know, a number of interviews, um, you know, for this weekend, frankly, for a long time, is that, you know, the, the American president, any American president, has um, a lot of inherent power authority called executive authority over foreign affairs. And when it comes to trade, Congress has the authority over setting tariffs but actually negotiating trade agreements is something that's an executive, even in our system, an executive function of government, right? You know, individual mm-hmm. legislators don't go off to Washington and negotiate trade deals. So, um, you know, the problem that we have is Congress has lent certain additional powers over the years to the office of the presidency, if you like. And unless Congress takes some of those powers back from the presidency, um, he has them. And one of those powers is to put in place national security tariffs. And Okay, we can say that his threatened national security tariffs on autos or the previous ones on aluminum and steel are ridiculous because they're not really a threat to the United States. The problem is American courts have this notion of three co-equal branches of government, and courts don't tend to second-guess you know, foreign policy, national security decisions of the American president. So that's kind of where we are. <laughs> and so he has the ability, and it's one of the few abilities he has. If he tries to do anti-dumping and countervailing duties, he doesn't have an exclusive right to do that, as we've seen, notwithstanding the chatter about the NAFTA Chapter 19 system, the American system itself, through the International Trade Commission or the Court of International Trade, can stymie him. But when it comes to these national security tariffs, that's probably the one area where if he decides to say there's a threat, he can get away with it. So I think we have to, when we're negotiating, I think we have to keep that in mind. I think... um, so I'm rambling on here, but I think part of the problem is the way we've approached the negotiations as a country is to try to do an end run around Trump. And you know, one of the dangers I think you learn early in life as a lawyer, probably you learned it in high school or even before that, is don't underestimate your adversary. And You'll never do that. You know, and I think the part of the problem here is because we don't like him, we think he's an idiot. And I think that he's smart enough to figure out what we're doing, which is you know, call it ragging the puck or. I don't know, now you want to call it icing the puck or something, but it's, it's, he's not stupid. He can clearly see that Canada's stalling for time. And he wants a deal, Mexico wants a deal, and I think he might very well look for opportunities to get leverage over us. And one of the areas where Congress or anyone else can't stop him is these national security tariffs. So we do have to keep that in the back of our mind or in the middle of our mind as we sit down and weigh whether or not to make concessions on dairy or on this Chapter 19 dispute settlement system. Is Mr. Trudeau being irresponsible by insisting on cultural exemptions and a trade deal? Yeah, I I still haven't unpacked enough of the reporting on that to know exactly what's going on. NAFTA itself has an exemption that's already in there for the existing NAFTA agreement for, um, for culture in Canada. Now, Obviously, culture, you know, in terms of when we say culture, we mean our policies around broadcasting, our policies around, uh, you know, ownership of newspapers and magazines, that kind of thing. But um, Americans have always had an issue about that. What was interesting to me is the Americans really didn't make a big deal of that in the official uh, notification to Congress at the start of these negotiations. So it's not to say, I mean, every American president has been concerned with culture in Canada. It's just never been an issue that's come to the fore and up until now, really wasn't didn't appear to be in, in the in the front of the America of the American demands on Canada. So, for myself, I'm not sure that there is really something being asked for here, or whether 
what we're seeing, you know, because the sources I'm reading all seem to be Canadian sources, which always is something that makes me a bit skeptical. Like, I, I haven't seen an American source on the record or off the record saying we're asking for culture from Canada. I've seen a bunch of what look like Canadian sources saying the Americans are asking us for culture. So that kind of looks like, like in, in case they have to make a concession on dairy or on intellectual property or maybe Chapter 19, they'll turn around and say we actually held the fort on culture. That's kind of, you know, so, until, until I see some, some more evidence that that's not what's going on, that's kind of what I think is going on. What a surprise, really, when you, we had an AFTA in place for so many years. And and now here we are. We're we're hearing that NAFTA's gone. I mean, Mr. Trump says he doesn't want that name anymore. No. So we'll assume that NAFTA is gone in name anyway. Then we had uh, the agreement with Mexico, which a lot of people I've spoken to in this country almost seem to feel like Mexico has stabbed us in the back. Yeah. Which I don't see that way. I think Mexico is looking after Mexico. And and here we are now where we have. Uh, Almost a personality conflict, which well, it is a personality conflict, which is intruded in the uh, in the trade negotiations between Canada and the United States. This is uh, this is like Rod Serling's world. Well, I, it is in some respects because you know basically I think look even the Chinese, uh, which is you know the country that's rivaling the United States for to have the biggest economy in the world, have basically looked at Trump and said, we've got to find some way to make a deal with this guy. We can't go tit for tat with him. Yeah. You know, the Europeans went in there and, and sort of did the same, you know, and, and decided to buy more soybeans. And Justin Trudeau kind of, it seems to me, has sort of, uh, you know, maybe started before the G7 summit, I'm not sure, has kind of placed himself as the leader of the resistance, it seems to me, outside of the United States. And, and um, in and, I, and if you're in Mexico and you're sitting there, they're, much, they're, they're an even smaller economy than Canada. Their ability to withstand, you know, tit-for-tat trade war is even less than ours. I don't think ours is as great as the government seems to suggest, but people so far in the polling don't care. But um, if you're in Mexico, you're going to look at this guy and say, do I want to go off the cliff with this guy? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the Mexicans have said, no, if we could get what we want, which is some insulation from these trade uh, tariffs, the 25% auto tariffs, which would kill us, um, let's do it. And if the Canadians want to argue about Chapter 19 or whatever else interests them, bully for them. Happy to be on the side of Canada, but we're not going off the cliff with you, Canada. You get your deal done with them. And I think that's kind of where we are. Yeah, you know, I spoke with an American who said, you think this is tough between Canada and the United States? For Donald Trump, this isn't tough at all. Tough for him was leaving Queens and going to Manhattan and taking over there. That was tough. Well, that's it. And especially, and I could just see, you know, having briefed a few, you know, ministers in my time, I could see... I definitely can see the situation. If you have a guy who's a former CEO running his own family-run company, and every time you go to him, you say, well, you can't do this because Congress has to say you can't do this because the courts can do that, and then you show him this bright, spanking new thing called Section 232, where he can basically say something's not in the national security interest and basically no one can touch him. I mean, I, I'm exaggerating a bit. There will be litigation around all of that, but he'll probably win by the time he gets to the Supreme Court. And, you know, frankly, watching a bit of the su Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Justice Kavanaugh, um, <laughs> he, he's, it really looks like he's going to get someone who really believes in the very strong and expansive view of presidential executive power. So uh, whatever, <laughs> if, if there was any doubt about Trump's ability to win in the Supreme Court before Kavanaugh's appointment, I think almost anyone has to now see Well, I think, I think it would be under any circumstance, it would be foolish for this nation to press the issue on trade to the point that the President of the United States, whether it's Donald Trump or not, would look to the uh, Supreme Court of uh, the U.S. for, for a resolution. I, I well, don't think that's wise and, at all. And, and then on what issues? And that's my question. You come back to the two. If the two outstanding real issues are dairy, then you'd say, well, it's not even really in our, quote, national interest. 
Yeah. It might be in our national interest to compromise. Give them the so-called concession that we're calling a bad deal, which is it's a bad deal in the sense that people get to buy cheaper milk in Canada. I, I, always, I always find that amusing, you know. And as for Chapter 19, you know, for those of us who've been at this for a long time and you know, getting the, into the weeds of it, Chapter 19 was a great idea in 1987, but in 1987 we didn't have the backstop of the World Trade Organization's stronger dispute settlement system. We also didn't have the record of a basically American non-compliance in the tough cases like softwood lumber. So knowing what we know now, you know, 30 years later, you have to ask yourself, what is it really worth? And beyond a rhetorical point of pride, why would we trade all of NAFTA and risk 25% tariffs on our auto industry, which would kill us, for a section of the agreement, a dispute settlement system that doesn't really work the way people in Canada are being told it works? Mr. Warner, have, have Justin Trudeau and Christian Freeland, and this is what uh, uh, Mr. Frank Buckley is going to be talking about in the next half hour, the professor from George Mason University who wrote the New York Post column, Justin Trudeau finally gets the trade trouble he deserves, NAFTA. Uh, have Mr. Trudeau and, and uh, Ms. Freeland caused problems that were not necessary by their negative public pronouncements Sometimes veiled, sometimes not so much about the president of the United States. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think it, 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 what's been amazing from the start is how, how, how it really didn't get very much attention in Canada until very recently, really until the Mexicans made their own move. I mean, the G7 summit, the thing that always amazed me about that is long before Trump had his tirade, I mean, there was a long feature piece, and feature pieces don't appear you know, as you know, in the New York Times, just by accident. You know, there was a feature piece on the same day, the closing day of the G7 summit, a feature piece on Christian Freeland, where she's going on and on about populists that had to be read by anyone around Donald Trump is referring to him, you know, with the historical allusions that we're not supposed to use, you know. Right. So I, and that was before he or said or did anything. And what, what on earth would possess you? And she's a former journalist, as you know, and she's not, you know, I would put it mildly, not completely at arm's length from the New York Times, so... I just thought that was an amazing thing to show up uh, in, uh, on the last day of the summit. And then she went off and did a speech uh, where she was given some award at the Council of Foreign Relations where she reprised some of that. Now, the Council of Foreign Relations, is, you know, even Barack Obama, I think, rather famously referred to them as the blob, you know, the sort of, <laughs> the thinking, the sort of orthodox thinking about foreign policy, which you can agree with or disagree with. But the point is, you know, if you're going into a group of people who don't like Trump and you're going to the heart of the beast in the middle of one of the most contentious negotiations we have and you're going to make the kind of comments that she's been making, I, I, um, you know, I, I, just, I, just, I don't understand that. I don't understand how that could be. You know, two things. I don't understand how that could be a good idea. And as someone who used to be in government and you know, advising government, I, 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 it's funny. You know, I, I kind of wonder what the professional civil service would have thought of that. Mm-hmm. Would they not have said... Uh, Minister, um, maybe this isn't a good idea, because I have to think that I and the sort of deputy ministers I worked with when I was, you know, would have, that's what we would have been saying. <laughs> and if we weren't saying it to the minister directly, we'd probably find a way of saying it, in my case, to the, you know, the premier's office. So I just don't completely understand why. So it has to be deliberate. These aren't stupid people, so they must be doing it for a reason, I want to believe. Yeah, I, I, not a good one. There is no good reason to do this. He's trying to actually close a deal with this guy, and you know he's erratic. Um, you know uh, that it, it can't help things. Now, I think part of the problem is that you know, I think part of it is I try to figure out why would they be doing this. It seems to me 
that in the the American the architecture of the American trade system is all based essentially since the time of Nixon at least um, on the idea that you have a relatively free trading president and you have a protectionist relatively protectionist Congress. And so in the past, what we what we lesson we learned the hard way is you had to lobby Congress in order to get some of the things we changed. We saw that famously on country of origin labeling and beef, which was you know something that came up in the Harper years. And I think we learned that lesson too well, perhaps. And so now we're doing it with Trump. The problem yeah. is now we have a relatively protectionist president who has some powers, as I said in the earlier right, segment, right. that he can use. Yeah. And so the strategy of actually going behind his back actually doesn't work the way it worked before. It does the opposite. Yeah. Mr. Warner, it gets I, him angry. I have to go because of the clock, but I really appreciate you coming on the show. I Thanks really enjoyed you. speaking with you. And uh, as this goes forward, I hope you'll come back. Sure. Thanks. Thanks so much. Mark Warner. Uh, international trade lawyer, Canada and the United States specifically. I've been speaking with Calvin Helene for, my God, it, it's got to be. Calvin, it must be more than 12 years since since we first spoke. Yes, it's been quite a long time. And I thank you for, for coming on the program, and I thank you for the excellent books, the dependency books that you wrote that have really resonated with people globally, and I just wanted to say that. They're still there. They're still being read by people globally, even though you have another um, objective now. I'm sure that it still remains a significant part of your life. So thank you for that. And uh, I'm really interested to hear what we're going to talk about today. And that is in the wake of TMX, the court decision on Trans Mountain, and we just heard the prime minister. And you've been talking to us on this program. We've been talking to Canadians for, it's got to be, is it two years now? About Eagle Spirit? Oh, I don't know. We've been we've been on this project for six years, right. so it seems to me longer. But maybe it's been only two years. Yeah. But here we here you are with with a with a with a pipeline project that you've been speaking about uh, publicly, and which the government seemed to be totally disinterested in, at least as far as providing any funding is concerned, and so. You, uh, you you went to GoFundMe, which uh, which I thought was brilliant, and hopefully it, it turned out well. But here you you seem you have a pipeline planned that if I don't if I'm not misunderstanding the court ruling, pretty much satisfies what the federal court of appeal said. The pipeline must must in, in fact satisfy. Plus, you have Suncor on your side and other major corporate players on your side. So um, now tell us, please, what what the uh, what Eagle Spirit is about. Remind us about where it's going to be located and what it would mean to the Canadian economy. Sure. Well, um, I can um, I, I'll start off by just giving you a little bit of background. This um, uh, project arose post uh, Northern Gateway and in that time and climate the indigenous people in northern BC were very uh, concerned about the environmental impact of that project um, there was really very little consultation and uh, they were worried about um, about creating opportunities for their communities and that project really didn't in their opinions, uh, offer them much. So um, we were asked to to uh, come in, and we're working with about 35 First Nations, 
And um, the first thing we did is, we, you know, a, the primary uh, initial component of consultation is, uh, is to listen. And a lot of the elders say you're born with one mouth and two ears, so you should listen twice as much as you, uh, as you talk. And in listening, you have to hear what the people are saying. And um, uh, that's uh, one of the primary things that uh, were criticized in the TMX case. And, uh, and the flip side of, uh, of consultation is accommodation. So what does that mean? Well, if you're out there listening and hearing what people are saying, um, how do you adjust what you're doing so that you accommodate their concerns? We went out for two to three years, and we just li- we listened. And then uh, what emerged, of course, was that um, people were, first of all, concerned about the environment. And um, so we hired experts from all over the world. I, we built what I believe is the most robust world-class environmental model. And um, we went back to the communities and we presented thousands of meetings. And um, they um, liked so much what we were presenting and they felt that this could be done safely and responsibly that uh, at the first meeting of the 35 communities, they organized themselves into a chief's council and unanimously passed a resolution to support an energy corridor through their traditional territories. So what started out being a a crude oil pipeline uh, came back as an endorsement for a multi-corridor pipeline because it made a lot of environmental sense, and because um, all of uh, a lot of the chiefs felt very strongly that if if uh, this can be done safely, rather than have uh, trains full of oil going through their communities, um, they would they could control it, they could lead the project, they could create the environmental model, and they could get equity out of it. Um, when you have a situation where uh, McLean's magazine has has uh, criticized Canada for uh, the statistics of First Nations being on a par with Nigeria and Sudan and other third world countries. Um, they want to, they need to look beyond just the environmental side of it to to development and when it can be balanced against. Uh, um, the in, the environmental concerns that they have, and when they feel that there's a, a top class environmental model that's uh, been developed, probably one that could set a precedent for the world, and how to do projects with people, um, that's what they voted for. So you you have the First Nations communities on side; they support this, right? Yes. And uh, and and it's it's beyond just. The I mean you you're ready almost ready to go shovel in the ground correct? Yes, we've uh, we we then went from from developing the environmental model to um, basically uh, addressing the um, commercial and other interests that need to be uh, addressed in a project like this. So. Uh, 
I'm so sorry. So, 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 what about the rooting? The route is from uh, directly from Fort McMurray, straight west to the BC border, um, north of uh, Williston Lake, and uh, down to the coast to Grassy Point in, on the BC coast. And do you consider at all that this is going to be a very significant uh, environmentally challenged route? Are you going to? Are you expecting? Uh, maybe you've already experienced it, um, or not experienced it. Is it going to be something that's going to be very, very significantly challenged as far on an environmental basis? No, the the route was specifically uh, chosen first. First of all, from an environmental point of view, rather than run the pipeline pipelines through the middle of the northern part of the province, where there are a lot of parks and bodies of water and so on, um, it's um, the the those kinds of environmental challenges are m- much um, less in the northern part, uh, uh, in a more northern route. And uh, we, um, um, I think the the uh, the strong feeling from the many of the chiefs and the chiefs council is that they do they really uh, do not like these. Um, environmental organizations coming into their traditional territories and with uh, the, f- the finances of uh, American environmental um, uh, big foundations with questionable agendas dictating through government policy what they should be doing in their, ter- their traditional territories. Mm-hmm. This um, is something that they, we've talked to Vivian Krauss about. Yes. Well, it's a it's a it's a big issue. I mean, we have a situation where we look across the border, and the big issue is Russian interference in the American election. And um, we're a natural resources economy, and on every front, for um, uh, groups with uh, different kinds of agendas, um, are. Uh, natural resources industry is being attacked, and we have one of the most highly regulated natural resource industries in the world. Um, with our project, we have uh, been working with um, uh, Fred Schneider from RII North America, a company out of uh, out of um, Calgary that has developed a way of extracting the oil uh, right out of the oil sands. It reduces hugely the amount of CO2. It uh, leaves uh, most of the, it leaves all of the tailings in the ground. It's, it just takes the oil out so you don't have tailings ponds. And you have a situation where um, you, uh, their system, the way they, it operates, it recirculates the water so you're not having a huge uh, draw on the water table in the area, which has been an environmental criticism. So we've answered all of those types of ideas. Who's in, who's operating the, uh, the 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 pipeline, Galvin? Who's in charge? How's our, it work? Our um, initial financial backer were it was the uh, fi- Aquilini uh, Investment Group from Vancouver, right? And we're in the process of um, of transitioning to. Um, industry uh, partners. Um, the project will basically 
be controlled by the First Nations. Okay. And so, um, what, I you... just wanted to um, to update you on, it's been a very busy summer and a lot of things have happened. Mm-hmm. And so we we have developed our our commercial model and our um, our business side of this uh, quite extensively, and we are now in a position where, um, with an energy corridor, we'll be shipping uh, both um, uh, upgraded uh, bitumen, which floats on water, which was one of the concerns of the of the chiefs, uh, and uh, we will be shipping. Uh, LNG natural gas liquids. Um, we've uh, secured uh, a preliminary commitment from one of the largest national oil companies in the world to uh, purchase the upgraded bitumen products at uh, close to Brent crude pricing, which would give them over $30 US more per barrel than they're getting now. Um, and we've uh, got some. Uh, commitments from producers to supply. Um, no. Just just on that note, um, because we're not shipping Dilbit, Dilbit is a 30% diluent, uh, 70% bitumen, which is actually sold. When you ship Dilbit, you have to um, have that mixture going out, and then they they recapture the the uh, diluent and have a separate pipeline coming back. So. In, in essence, sixty percent of your pipeline capacity is shipping something that's not being sold. So we've done a preliminary analysis on the uh, Northern Gateway pipeline and the cost of shipping one barrel of oil versus what we're doing. And for them, it was a close to seven fifty four per barrel, and our shipping cost would be about a buck fifty. Wow! Because we're shipping a product that is in very high yeah. demand. By um, by refineries for that kind of product, so um, that's one um, one important thing that that has happened. Um, with uh, rather than just ship straight LNG out, um, a 48 inch pipeline can handle about uh, five billion cubic feet per day, or five trillion billion cubic feet per day. Um, the uh, we'll be shipping about two. Uh, Two billion cubic feet per day of natural gas liquids. That's all of these liquids which currently have no value, like butane, ethylene, and so on, <clears throat> can be uh, and there can be a um, uh, hydrogenation petrochemical feedstock plant built, possibly in some place like Prince Rupert, that would change the molecule, those molecules into the precursors to uh, high value plastics, which would add, which would uh, return probably about $5 billion more just on that product alone above the LNG. Um, we've signed a agreement with the four major international uh, craft pipeline unions, Teamsters, International Union of Operating Engineers, um, the, uh, um, the, the all of the different trades and labor uh, International Union North America. So we have 330,000 members in Canada uh, supporting what we're doing. We have assembled the top uh, business and technical team, best in class, and we'll be making announcements uh, early this fall on, uh, we're, 
what will be major uh, names that will be joining our. Okay, I have operation. I have one I have one minute. I have to ask you this: When ideally, or when practically, and I understand the uh, the pipeline is expensive, but it's cost effective, and that at the end of the day is is what's important. Um, when would it could it be finished, and what would it mean to the Canadian economy? If Eagle Spirit were operational, up and running, what does it mean to the Canadian economy in the first year of operation? Well, I think it would mean that uh, our biggest and most valuable commodity would be returning huge amounts of um, financial resources to the provinces and and uh, and the uh, federal government. And that says it all. How, how do people in in the seconds we have left? How do people? satisfy themselves, where can they go to find out more about Eagle Spirit? Um, at present, I think they can just uh, Google Eagle Spirit Energy, and a lot of, there's, uh, we have a, um, a GoFundMe page. The, uh, the issue we're currently facing is that the federal government is proposing to ban uh, oil tanker traffic in northern British Columbia um, right. when... They're allowing oil to be shipped everywhere in Elson, Canada, including yeah. the Great Lakes and so on. So, and, Calvin, we'll uh, have to we'll have to pick this up again because really, literally, the the satellite's going to cut us off. Uh, okay. So, it's Eagle Spirit Energy. Go to uh, your use your favorite search engine, Google if it, that's it. Eagle Spirit Energy. Find out more, and we'll talk again real soon. Calvin, thank you for the time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Always great speaking with you. Kai-Fu Lee is the chairman and the CEO of Cinovation Ventures. He's the president of the Cinovation Ventures Artificial Intelligence Institute, and he holds computer science degrees from Columbia University and Carnegie Mellon University, where he obtained his Ph.D. Dr. Lee is the former president of Google China, also an executive with Microsoft, SGI, and Apple, and he was selected as one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2013. He is the author of AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. It's been praised by Wired Magazine, the Financial Times, The Economist, as well as industry leaders such as the CEO of Microsoft and the President of Future. So I had an opportunity yesterday to speak with Dr. Lee about AI Superpowers and about an artificial intelligence, where it is in our lives now and where it's going to be. Listen. Mr. Lee, we're all increasingly familiar with the term AI, but to set the scene, would you please tell us how artificial intelligence plays a direct and significant role in our lives today? Uh, certainly. Uh, AI has improved tremendously in the past 10 years. So within narrow domains, AI can basically, with uh, almost no human intervention, make smart decisions, predictions, classifications. So we see it every day. It's a part of uh, every Amazon product, every Google product. Uh, targeting of ads and recommendations are all based on AI. Uh, we also see products like the Amazon Echo, uh, Apple Siri. Uh, they're able to talk to us. And also uh, the capabilities of face recognition is being used uh, for security and checkout. And, of course, autonomous vehicles uh, are coming. So almost every product you can imagine 
um, that needs to make a decision based on large quantities of objective data uh, can do so and do so much better than human beings. That's uh, the big change. That is a major statement. I was about to ask you whether AI, uh, in fact, is superior to the human brain in arriving at conclusions, and you've just told me it is. And this is in the early stages of AI development, or relatively early. Well, it's superior to the human brain for single task domains. So let's say you want to ma- uh, minimize the default rate on a loan, maximize the ad revenue for Amazon, or you want to recognize the most faces or understand the speech, uh, AI will beat humans. But if you want more general understanding or creativity, AI is still very far from human capabilities. So how does data collection fit into the overall impact of AI? And you write that China is dramatically closing the gap between it and the United States as far as AI is concerned is linked to the smartphone. How does that all work out? Right. So in my new book, AI Superpowers, I talk about the rise of China. Uh, China is behind in AI technologies per se. However, what matters more for making AI work really well is that you have a ton of data to feed the AI software. So think of AI software as a monster that eats a lot of data. The more it eats, the more powerful it is. That's more important than how experienced the AI scientist is in programming the AI. So China is a much larger market than the U.S., so there's four to five times more data, but also China is digitizing everything much faster. In China, all the payments are done by mobile phone. There's no cash, so that gets digitized. Uh, when people uh, use bicycles, the bicycle tracking is digitized. Uh, when food is delivered, and they're delivered 10 times more than the U.S., that's digitized. So China has more people, more content, but more digitization per user, and all those digitized data are used to teach the AI algorithm to know more about the user and therefore deliver products the user is happier with and also make more money per user. And this is where the smart finance program fits into the equation. I imagine the Chinese program to establish creditworthiness of an individual seeking a personal or perhaps a business loan. So how does artificial intelligence fit into smart finance? And what is that program? Smart Finance is a company that we as a VC invested in. Uh, It's a phone app that you download, mobile app that you download, and then you just fill in your name, um, national ID, and your address, and how much money you want, and uh, in 15 seconds, money comes to your phone (laughs) if if you qualify. So imagine how risky it would be if if you and I were to walk in the streets and uh, just look at people and and they hand you this piece of paper with four things and you said okay here's two hundred dollars for you here's two hundred for you remember to pay me back that's a very risky proposition but because the AI algorithms are very very smart they use not only the data that's entered but they also ask the user consent to send up data from their mobile phone. Uh, the same way you send up data to Facebook and Google when you install their software. And that data is then used as auxiliary information to determine if you're loan worthy. So, for example, 
uh, depending on what if you have a lot of games on your phone, or if you have even uh, uh, God forbid gambling apps on your phone, uh, those would uh, count against your credit worthiness. On the other hand, if you are have a lot of iBooks and you read a lot, that might be favorable. If 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 your phone is a high-end phone, that might be favorable. If it's a uh, cheap phone, that might be less favorable. I'm I'm giving these as hypothetic、mm-hmm. statements. I'm not actually sure how AI treats it, but it actually extracts three thousand different features from your phone, plus the what you enter as to your address, national ID, and name,、um, and then it decides to give you the loan or not, and this is done completely automatically. Uh, humans cannot do it because they can't evaluate that much information, and human default rate would be very high. You can imagine it's a stranger walking up to you to borrow two hundred dollars, and this system is down to three or four percent default rate, and、uh, at you know credit card level interest rates, this is a very profitable business.、Mm-hmm. You wrote that whether you're speaking about artificial intelligence to sophisticated business leaders. Or doing the same in front of a room of kindergarten children, the questions are frequently the same.、Uh, of the list of such questions, you quote in AI Superpowers, your book,、uh, is quote: "If robots do everything, then what are we humans going to do?" End quote. So the next question is: Is AI eventually, and perhaps sooner than later, doing everything an overstatement, or is that more than less going to become fact? It's not everything, but it's about half of what we do, and that is a lot.、Uh, it is basically the routine tasks, the simple decisions made by、uh, people who are doing, for example, telemarketing, telesales, customer service rep,、uh, and、um, dishwasher, assembly line worker,、um, auto mechanic. Those types of jobs、uh, are the first phase that will be challenged because they're relatively routine. Then, after that, some of the still routine but more complex jobs will take maybe 15 years to for, for AI to be able to do things like driving,、uh, things like radiologists looking at X-rays and MRIs, and there will be another wave of jobs. Altogether, it'll be probably about half the jobs we have in the next. 15 to 20 years will be replaced by AI. The other half, the good news is, the other half of the jobs they will be amplified by AI. So doctors can rely on AI tools for better diagnosis, and a doctor can pay more attention to patients. Teachers can use AI to be better teachers because AI will determine what each student needs, whether it's You know, improving speaking, accent removal, learning long division—that、uh, can be a big assistance. AI will assist、uh, reporters, writers, lawyers, finance planner, planners, as well as the creatives. The scientists will use it to filter out possibilities when they invent new invent new drugs. CEOs will use AI to visualize possible decisions and their ramifications. So, very roughly speaking, AI will. Um, enhance and amplify human capabilities in the minority of our jobs, but it will replace about half of our jobs. Mr. Lee, you you clearly recognize the impending artificial intelligence explosion, 
And you started a Beijing or Beijing venture firm in 2009 after holding very senior positions at Google China, you were the president, and at Microsoft. Now, the approach to artificial intelligence development in China and the United States is, from what you write, very different, and you call that techno-utilitarianism. Could you explain that to, to us, please? What is techno-utilitarianism? Yes, that's uh, with respect to the Chinese government policy. Right. I think a lot of people in the U.S. think of Chinese government as subsidizing technology, and that isn't uh, the main thing. I think the Chinese te- uh Government, they do help technology development, but by letting technologies, believing technologies, uh, adoption to be so important, they will let technologies go out and be tried, even when there's still issues remaining, and and they'll watch it carefully. If there if the issues emerge, they may regulate it, they may um, uh, ban it, but more likely they will uh, allow it to flourish. So that's why China has no cash, because the Chinese government thought mobile payment, that's pretty helpful, because it reduces 3% of credit card charges. Um, Does it work? Not sure. Can there be fraud? Maybe. But let's try it. And then when it's proven to work fine, um, it basically ate up cash and credit cards in two and a half years. Um, The same is true in, say, autonomous vehicles. Um, much more freedom and license is being given to test autonomous vehicles, including trucks on highways, and even highways are being built to, to support autonomous vehicles, and even new cities are being built. And there are cities building, building two layers, one layer for autonomous vehicle, one layer for uh, human drivers. So lots of experimentation and trying and then when they figure something out, then it gets, gets deployed na- nationwide. So this approach contrasted to the Western approach, which is to be very deliberate, understand ramifications, especially re- with respect to uh, human health, livelihood, and other things, and get every kink worked out before permitting to launch the first such product. That's the Western practice. Now, both practices are based on um, I think, credible, historical, and cultural reasons. But when it comes to AI, the Chinese method may work better because it, it, it will get the product out there, uh, get the data collected, and then the data will make the technology better even if initially it wasn't perfect. I'm, I'm still uh, thinking about when you said there's no cash in China. It's all, it's all done... Yeah on the phone or done technologically. Um, So AI is no longer, though, the domain of techno-scientists in university labs alone. AI and its implications are everywhere, and interest in AI is booming globally. And you also write how China, in a relatively few years, because of great populist enthusiasm and regulation, Chinese regulation, which you just talked about, China has caught the United States in artificial intelligence development in many areas. Now, the implications of this are massive, and not just for the U.S. and China, but for all of us. What's the most important about two economic and military powers becoming the artificial intelligence superpowers as well? Uh, well, I think it's, it has huge geopolitical implications. It means uh, there will be two superpowers in wealth. I think more AI as electricity. Yes, they can be used in weapons, 
but the primary use is enabling and disrupting everything. And every time it disrupts, when it, when it disrupts customer service or stock um, brokers or uh, factory floors, it will create so much more profit because it's a much cheaper, efficient, accurate way of doing things. So it will make China and U.S. by far the two wealthiest countries. And in comparison, other countries are going to have challenges because especially if they have poorer population that may be displaced by AI. See, in the past, a, a poorer country might look to China as the model of getting out of underdeveloped country by having cheap labor force, making money, doing exports, and building up wealth, and then climbing up the economic ladder. Or they might like the India approach, which is taking outsourcing the work Americans uh, would prefer to outsource, uh, things like call center and the like, repetitive work, and, and making an economy that way. However, both methods are gone because the future Chinese or any country's manufacturing plan will just be robots. Future call center will just be handled by robots. So, so that so not only are jobs gone, but jobs are particularly gone for the for the poorer countries that had hoped to use the China or India model mm -hmm. to get them out of underdevelopment. I have so many more questions for you, but we're just about out of time. So may I just ask you one final question? This is an all-encompassing, I guess, question uh, in the short term and the longer term. Who will define and control artificial intelligence? Will it be man or machines? The type of artificial intelligence I'm talking about is still very much human programmed not programmed as telling the system what to do, but telling the system what the outcome wants, should be. So the human would say, tweak all the system so that the loan default rates are minimal, or tweak all the ad display, uh, displays so that the ad revenue is maximized. So it is the human that issues uh, the objective function, which is, what AI should optimize. The AI does not have the creativity to come up with new ways, uh, new names, new goals, or nor do they have ways to cross domains or plan or think strategically. So we are still very much in control. All right, the book is AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order by Dr. Kai-Fu Lee, Chairman and CEO of Sinovation Ventures and president of the Sinovation Ventures Artificial Intelligence Institute. Uh, Dr. Lee, it's fascinating. I wish we had more time. Um, I thank you so much for, for spending the time with us, giving us a great deal to think about. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks. Have a great day, sir. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Roy Green Show is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.